Hallelujah. Well, I'm bringing the word today, but thankfully it's not up to me, it's up to him. Amen? So we're going we're gonna to dive right in. We're going to get rolling. Is your engine going? Is your soul in tune with what the Holy Spirit is doing? All right, here we go. Last week, we discussed how God gives operative favor and covenantal favor for you and me as his people, okay? Uh, we saw how Joseph consciously entered into Pharaoh's world and solved Pharaoh's problem. Regardless of the fact that Joseph was in Egypt unjustly, he still pushed in to actually be relevant to the king of the day. What was his relevance? It was heaven's strategy for the problems of the day. I'm going to say that again. What was Joseph's relevance? He was accessing heaven's strategy to be able to overcome the challenge of the day. I'm here to tell you that heaven's strategies are here. Heaven's strategies are here, and they're accessible to you and me. The question is, are we listening? The world is waiting for the sons and daughters of the Most High God to reach into what they already have and give it out to the world around them. Are we listening? We talked about Exodus 1, chapter 8, which is this. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. The reality of Exodus 1, 8 is that there is always going to be shifts and change uh, uh, for those above us. Whether it's a change of opinion, whether it's a change of, uh, of leadership, whatever it is, it's part of life. And we, as the people of God, need to figure out how to manage those changes and those transitions well. Mm. We cannot rely on yesterday's miracles to gain favor with today's pharaohs. The operative favor of God that Joseph accessed and worked through by, by implementing the heaven strategies actually had an expiry date. So every generation has to dig deep and dig in to the spirit of God to be able to access heaven strategies. This is our work that we get to partner with the Holy Spirit in. Amen. So at the same time, even though that operative favor had an expiry date, the covenant favor of Jesus through his blood never expires over our lives. That means that irregardless of our time, irregardless of what's in our bank account, irregardless of our circumstance, we have the covenant favor of God that is operating in and through us day in and day out, regardless of, your, of what's going on in your life. And you know what that covenantal favor is doing? It's building you up to prepare for your next. It's doing a lot of things, but that's the one that we highlighted last week. No matter our situation, God's covenant favor is here and it will prepare us. Hallelujah. Would you stand with me? I want to just read the scripture. Would you read with me Exodus chapter one? We're going to start in verse eight. It might be on the screen, but you can, you can also pull it up on your phone or your Bible. 
and we're gonna we're gonna continue where we left off last week. Okay. So there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, "Look." The people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Hmm. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithium and Ramses. But the more they afflicted him, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other Puah. And he said, when you do the duties of the midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and he said to them, why have you done the, this thing and saved the male children? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore, God dealt with, well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there is life and life abundantly in your word. We thank you, God, for, for depositing your seed, your kingdom seed inside of our souls today. Would you have your way? Would you do your work in our midst? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Exodus 1 has two narratives woven together, Pharaoh's and the midwives. It's interesting that both of them are motivated by the same thing, but it plays out in two very different ways. What is this motivation? F-E-A-R. It's fear. Both of them motivated by fear. Now, I pray that as we, we are going to be talking about fear, everybody's favorite subject, okay? I'm prepping you right now. But I pray that by the end of this message, you will both be encouraged and challenged. We're going to be starting out by looking at Pharaoh. Because, you know, sometimes the best mentors are the ones who show you what not to do. And it's important to listen to them as well. And when we understand what not to do, then the what to do becomes clear. Amen? Are you with me? So, Pharaoh is minding his own business in Exodus chapter 1. He's sitting on his throne, sipping his pina colada, and he is enjoying life. And he's enjoying the fruit of those who have gone before him. And then something happens. 
he recognizes, he sees something that he knows quite well. And usually what he sees is usually with him. But this time when he sees it, it's on somebody else. You know what that is? Favor. Pharaoh recognizes the favor of God on the Israelites and it's right under his nose. And he begins to take note. He starts observing. He didn't pay very, very much attention to the Israelites before this time, but when he recognized the favor, remember he's used to favor being on him, but when he sees it on the Israelites, it starts taking up brain space. He starts thinking more and more about who are these Israelites, which begins the moment of destiny for him. The choice begins. How is he going to react to the presence of favor on somebody else's life? He could start thinking, I imagine. He, he starts thinking, well, I, I guess I could ignore it and let it continue. I could come against it or I could partner with it. Once he notices the favor on somebody else's life, it doesn't take very long for him to make the decision. So, in verse 9, we just read it. In verse 9, he gathers his people. And you know, you know everybody has their people when you need validation. Hmm? Everybody has their people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know who to call when you need validation. So you gather those people. And this is exactly what Pharaoh did. He gathered them and, and he had his observations and he brought his observations before these people. He said, look and see that they are numerous and more mighty than we. He sees the favor and he positions himself against it. And his crowd validates his decision. He encountered fear and insecurity inside of himself and he let it speak. Church, in this moment in history, right here in Exodus chapter one, we have an invitation to learn. An invitation to learn how to recognize God's favor on others and partner with it. Pharaoh had a choice. Pharaoh had an opportunity and he chose to position himself against the favor of God. We have the same choice as favor. It's nice to be the one who has the recognizable favor. It's nice to be the one who's the rising star, who always gets the promotions, who's getting the salary hikes, price hikes, right? The one who, who is walking in the manifest favor or the recognizable favor of God. But when that person is someone else, it can bring out a little bit of a pharaoh inside of us. The little pharaoh can come out. It happened this morning in my house, actually. My three kids, two of them could do no wrong this morning. They did everything right. The other kid could do nothing right this morning. But you know what? It, it wasn't bothering them, him that he could do nothing right. What bothered him is that the other two could do nothing wrong. He was so frustrated that they were being perfect little angels. <laughs> Do you get my point? When we see someone else succeed, what comes out of you? What's your reaction to the presence of favor on somebody else's life? 
you and I are not the only ones blessed in this world. You and I are not the only one that God wants to use in this world. You and I are not the only ones called by God in this world. Faith is a team sport. There is no one-man shows in this gig that you signed up for. In the kingdom of God, an assist and a goal have the same value. God loves the midfielder and striker combo. You want to be able to have God use you more? Then get good at midfielding. Get good at recognizing the hand of God on somebody else's life and agreeing with it instead of fighting with it. Don't resist the favor of God on somebody else's life. Say yes and amen to it. Amen? You can clap for that. It begs the question, what does it look like to partner with God's favor on somebody else? When we want to partner with, God on, uh, with God's favor on somebody else, it, it could look a whole different kind of way. It could be a prayer of blessing. It could be an introduction to somebody that, that can help them. It could, you could bless them with money, with no strings attached. You could encourage them over coffee. You could personally acknowledge the favor and just celebrate it in their presence. What's my point? I'm trying to make it practical for us. Partnering with favor looks like something. It's not just an idea that's floating around. It takes word and it takes action. Church, can we be a, a community of believers who would pursue spiritual and emotional maturity and come alongside and partner with God's favor in other people's lives? This is Discipleship 2.0. This is emotional and spiritual health. When we can look at God working in somebody else's life and legitimately and purely say, wow, amazing, yes and amen. How can I help? How can we see it go farther? But you know what? It isn't always that easy. When everyone else is getting pregnant and you can't, when to celebrate somebody else's getting their, their dream job and you've, you're unemployed and you've been writing those applications month in, month out with no end in sight, blessing that engagement, that business deal, that recognition, that fund, that funding, that raise, it tests us. And it's supposed to test us. It tests us like Pharaoh was tested back in Exodus 1. But you know what? Tests are good for us. You know why? Because it gives us a glimpse into the current state of our heart. And you and I need a good glimpse of the current state of our heart. So instead of resisting the test, let's invite it so that we can actually have an accurate picture of what's going on. So why is this hard? Because hope deferred makes the heart sick. And the fearful questions naturally come. What are those fearful questions? Is there, go, is there enough of God's favor left for me after he, he's done with them? When it gets hard for us, it reveals the scarcity mindset that we've been living with. 
Scarcity mindset says, if they are succeeding, then the chances of me succeeding are now less. But church, I'm here to tell you that the kingdom of God is not scarce. God is a God of abundance. They can walk in God's favor and you can too. Heaven is not gonna run out of favor. I'm gonna say that again. Heaven is not gonna run out of favor. It might look different than the person sitting next to you, but that doesn't mean it's scarce. And it doesn't mean that there's not enough. There's always enough. There's always enough. Heaven will not run out. Jesus does not run out. And he does not forget his children. You are uh, the pupil of his eye, the, the apple of his eye, okay? Not in a self-centered kind of way, but something that you can rest in because you are a child of God. There is enough. There's always enough. And if we, if we struggle to celebrate other people's victories, then it means that we are believing something either about God's character, ability, or, ident or our identity that does not belong. If you struggle with that, okay, pay attention next time somebody else succeeds around you. What's going on in your heart? This is a good, good moment for you where you get to look in and say, okay, am I believing something about God that isn't true? Whether it's his character ability or is my identity not rooted in him fully? What is it? This is a good opportunity for us. But when we celebrate other people's successes, you are demonstrating a unique expression of faith in God for your own life. We can sing whatever songs we want. We can pray whatever prayers we want. But when we are confronted with this kind of situation, the kind of situation that Pharaoh was put in, okay? And when we rise above it and when we are actually able to celebrate their success, that's a sweet smelling fragrance and aroma that goes up to heaven. It's an awesome worship moment that you can only get in that situation. Here's why this is important. Celebrating others in faith is precisely what differentiates you from Pharaoh. By doing that, you are resisting fear that Pharaoh was crippled by. So in Jesus' name, I declare over you the sufficiency of God's grace. For when you come across those moments, you will be able to empower others and you will be able to walk in the opposite spirit of fear in your life, in your relationships and celebrate the favor of God in those around you. In Jesus' name, I thank you, Lord, for our church to be able to walk in this kind of maturity. In Jesus' name, I thank you, God, that in our minds we will out, root out that scarcity mentality that keeps us comparing, that keeps us thinking that there's not enough. In Jesus' name, no more. Amen. Amen, amen. So, church, this is your homework for the week. Look for ways to practically affirm the hand of God in others. Look for practical ways to practice that muscle of celebrating others. And when you get good at it, this is the good news, God will begin trusting you with more because he'll know that you're carrying his heart. 
And so he'll, he'll give you more, more responsibility, more of, he'll just broaden your shoulders to be able to do more because he knows, ah, that's my son. Ah, that's my daughter. She gets my heart. Amen. So verse nine, Pharaoh gathers his people and they validate. He says to the people, look, look, look at the Israelites. The more he looked, the more evidence of danger there was in his mind. The Israelites are growing. They're numerous. They're exceedingly mighty. Verse nine says, I want to borrow at this moment from uh, the, the preacher, Bill Johnson. He says this, fear will always attract whatever information is needed to legitimize its existence. Fear will always attract whatever information is needed to legitimize its existence. What does this mean? Because Pharaoh started his investigation in the spirit of fear, it didn't matter what evidence was put before him. Fear already rigged the data. Fear already made up Pharaoh's mind before he even started. And so this is a lesson for us. When we look at Pharaoh's life, we need to understand that fear taints our lenses. It changes the way you see the person sitting in front of you. It changes your interactions with others. It changes your business deals. It changes the way you operate and think. Pharaoh thought he was making sound judgment. He thought, you know, Pharaoh needs to protect his country. He needs to do what's best in his, what's in the best interest of his people, right? So he thinks he's protecting his country. But the fear of man clouded his decisions. And do you know what ended up happening? We'll get there someday, okay? So Pharaoh points to the evidence rigged by fear and he begins to play this game that I like to call the what if game. The what if game, it's in verse 10, okay? Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest... And he goes, what if they multiply? What if they have a war? What if we have a war? What if they side with our enemies? What if they fight for our enemies? What if they end up leaving the country? The what if game. Think about this, guys. The most powerful, the most wealthy man on the face of the planet He can have anything and do anything he wants. He snaps his fingers and grapes appear. He snaps his fingers and he gets all the money in the world he wants. He snaps his fingers and he gets a private jet fueled, ready to go right away. This is who Pharaoh is. In fact, guys, Pharaoh was worshiped and seen as a deity, as a God uh, uh, for his own people. His own people worshiped him. You don't get any higher than this. And yet he's still playing the what if game, which means that your if onlys will never solve your what ifs. If only I had more money. If only I was married. If only I had a house. If only I had a car. If only I wouldn't have to worry. I wouldn't have to stress. I'd be able to relax. If money, power, and fame didn't solve Pharaoh's fear problem, then it's not going to solve it for you. Don't buy into the lie. 
don't buy into the lie of your if onlys. Pharaoh gets his list of what ifs. He gathers his people of, that validate his position. Okay, and he gets buy-in and they take on his what-if list and the most crazy thing happens right here. Their what-ifs drive them to be in dread. It says they, it drove him and all of Egypt to dread Israel in verse 12 and they were in dread of them. Another translation says that they were sick with worry sick with worry. He has all the power, fame in the world, and yet he's over here biting his nails. Sick with worry. Egypt's in the bathroom, sick with worry. And here's what's crazy. Israel hasn't even done anything yet. <laughs> Israel, there's no war. There's no uprising. There's no escaping. It's all in Egypt's head. Fear is very contagious. I want to borrow another quote from the great um, 19th century Scottish writer, George MacDonald. He rightly says, fear always sides with what you are afraid of. I'm going to say it again. Fear always sides with what you are afraid of. Pharaoh gave fear power in his decision-making, and it led him and the whole country down the very road he didn't want to go down. Literally, what he was afraid of happened. Spoiler alert. God wages war on Pharaoh, and then all of the Israelites leave the country. That's exactly what he didn't want to have happen here in verse 12, or in verse 10. The what ifs, the what ifs. What if I fail? What if she doesn't like me? What if he cheats on me? What if the economy gets worse? What if we don't get the loan? What if we get kidnapped? What if my kids aren't safe? What if I'm publicly humiliated? What if, what if, what if, what if? Friends, the what ifs are not your friends. They are fighting against you because behind every what if is a fear and a belief that is fighting against your purpose and it's fighting against your identity as a son or daughter of God. It's time for us to be radical and wage war on our what ifs. Are you hearing what I'm having to say today? Mm. You know how to overcome the what ifs? The fears that tend to drive us? The answer is again in Exodus chapter one with the midwives. <laughs> Pharaoh calls the Hebrew midwives together and he pressures them. And he says, as the Hebrew women are giving birth, if the babies are boys, kill them. But if the babies are girls, let them live. Now, we could talk about this all day, but that'll have to wait for another sermon. How many of you know that when the king, who everybody thinks is a god, tells you to do something, you should probably do it? That is an intimidating, scary moment. Because remember, snap, grapes. Snap, private jet airplane, okay? Snap, you're dead, okay? It's very easy for Pharaoh to do anything he wants. And yet these midwives are functioning on another level. The mid 
in verse 17. Here we go, verse 17. But the midwives feared God. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. We saw how Pharaoh was plagued with fear, and it was just right here. He made decisions out of fear. He created communities out of fear. And he, he, he had public relations according to fear. But the midwives, who are, despite their subordination, despite their humble, humble space, they could overcome their fear. How? You want to know? The only way to truly defeat the fear of man is to fear God. The only way to fight the fear of man is the fear of God by shifting who you fear. Every single one of us have to struggle with fear and we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that. But the, the reality is, is that we must do whatever it takes to shift our fear from fear of man to fear of God. It's kind of confusing. There are so many commands in the Bible that says, don't fear, do not be afraid, fear not, right? And then over here in other parts of the Bible, it says they validate the presence of fear. The difference is who you are fearing because fear is ultimately about trust. Whoever you fear will command your attention, will command your affection. The Israelites, when they crossed the, the, the Red Sea after they escaped and, uh, and God destroyed the Egyptian army, and they, they, they realized on the other side of the Red Sea, the Bible says in Exodus 14, 31, it says, Fear, they feared the Lord and put their trust in him. They feared the Lord and put their trust in him. Fear is a, is a very interesting animal here, but we must understand that our fear does not belong in the fear of man. It belongs with God and God alone. So my question to you, as a child of God, who are you trusting? Who are you believing? You will deliver yourself into the hands of whomever you fear. If you fear man, then you are delivering yourself into their hands. And if you fear God, then you are delivering yourself to be able to rest in his. Fear of man. Wow, we could talk about that all day. The, what would they say about that? The, the, the obsession with what other people think. That's fear of man. The, the, the fear that uh, you're going to disappoint somebody else. That's fear of man. I'm not talking about uh, eliminating relationships. No, there's a way to honor. There's a way to interact. But where God has your trust. I, I think I have enough time. I'm, I'm, I wanted to share a personal story. <sighs> Probably thir 13 or so years back, uh, there was a time uh, my wife Haley and I, we were... We were working a lot. I was working a ton. I was working probably 70 hours a week. And I was just under so much stress, so much pressure. And 
there, there was a lot shifting around us. And we had our one day off. We finally got a day off. And we decided, you know what? Let's go swimming. Let's enjoy this day. So off with our towels and swimming trunks and, and floaties, we went to, to the swimming pool. And Haley went ahead, went ahead and dove in, and she's swimming. And I, uh, I'm, I'm standing there, and I, I get one foot, one step down, one, one step into the water. And I'm... I'm frozen. Now, I'm, I'm an expert swimmer, okay? Expert doggy paddler, more like, okay? I'm standing in this water, and I can't move. I am so stressed out that I can't even get in the water and enjoy what I should be enjoying. I am so stressed out. I'm not afraid of the water, but that fear actually... <laughs> The stress was actually fear masquerading as stress. I, was, I wasn't afraid of the water. What I was actually afraid of is I was so afraid that I was going to fail over there. I was afraid that I was going to fail at my work, that I was going to disappoint so many different people. And that plagued me so much that I couldn't even get in the water. It was a wake-up call moment for me because I realized that I'm not actually dealing with stress. I'm dealing with the fear of man in my life. I'm dealing with the fear of failure and what other people think of me. And it's affecting my whole life. I can't even go for a swim. I can't even enjoy my one day off. Church, today is a wake-up call moment for you if you'll take it. It's a wake-up moment to be able to say, to be able to identify the fear of man, what it looks like in your life and say, ah, I am afraid of failing. I am afraid of this. I am afraid of that. Naming it and then declaring the Lordship of Christ over it and shifting your fear from the fear of man into the fear of God. The midwives here are forerunners for us, church. Their power came from knowing who to fear. In a world where there is so much to be afraid of, they lived in a world where there was so much to be afraid of, and yet they were able to come, overcome. They were able to live and rise above it. Isn't that amazing? Their strength came from the fear of the Lord. It's time. It's time to let God have the final say on your fear because God is the only one that can uproot it. He's the only one that can identify where it is, where, what the source is, the, the, the source of the root. He's the only one that really knows. And he's the only one that can heal it. God wants to speak in that space in your heart. Are you gonna let him speak? Are you gonna let him speak? God is not afraid of your fear. He doesn't compartmentalize where he's over here and your fear is over there and, and he can't touch your fear. No, he wants to be invited into that space because it's when he's able to touch it that you're able to be healed from it. Amen?